The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, take the bat phone off the hook and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 335 with guest Jonathan Zuck, recorded live Monday, March 31st, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine. A leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who wrote his congressman to see if he could do something about that damn better know framework music, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here. About to rock your world for the next hour, so sit back, relax, and uh, pour yourself a nice cup of... Uh, of coffee. Whatever makes you happy. Or whatever makes you happy. Most people, I think, listen to this show during the day, don't you think? Yeah, well, I hear the thing to do is listen on commute. Yeah, it makes the commute time much, much better. Or the workout time. Yeah, or even laundry time or dishes time. Lawn mowing time. Lawn mowing time. Believe it or not, we are not computers. We have to do all this biological stuff once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> even though we think we are. <laughs> How are you, Richard? I am well, sir. My renovation is finally underway. My house has been torn apart. Are you serious? Finally, after all this time, yeah, we're finally underway. Got your variants? I got my variants. I got my permits. I got guys with crowbars ripping apart my main floor. You talked about that on Mondays, I know, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It was, been, it was a tough go. You know, it was a lot of paperwork to be done, but it's necessary. Where are you staying in the meantime? Like down the street? Yeah, at- rented a house like a block and a half away just down the hill from here. Wow, so you had to, like, move all your essential stuff out? Yep, got some movers, moved, said, see, all this stuff on the main floor, put it down there. And they did well, it. you know, the the building owners have been trying to get me to reno- to renovate a uh, space here at Pop Studios in the bu- same building on the same floor into an apartment. And so they've had to do the same thing. They've had to go to the town and get a variance. Hmm. And uh, they got it, apparently, that the preferred zoning for a city building like this is residential on top. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Of course, you've done a major renovation with the studio. With the studio, right. But, you know, that's where I sort of like, you know, I sort of put my money into this building already. I'm not sure I want to put any more in. Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, $25 a square foot for totally done, you know, they'll do all the renovation themselves. That turns out to like a ridiculous amount of money for a rental. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And especially when you think, when you think in those dollars per square foot and you drop a towel on the floor and think, wow, dude, that's 25 bucks a month. I think I'll move to Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, let's get into uh, Better Know Framework. All right. What do you got for me, sir? Well, what I got is a class in system.io called File Info. Oh. And, uh, you know, there's, you always have to call out to the operating system to get information about a file. And I'm talking about the date, the size. The size is usually what you need, right? Yeah, often. Often. You want the size of a file so you can load it up in a stream and sort of do, do something with it. But anticipate, you know, what trouble you're about to have. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, but so the system.io.fileinfo, you create a new file info class and you pass the file name to it. And then, of course, it has properties like attributes, so you can look at it, creation time, uh, the creation time in UDC, the directory, which is a directory that it's in directory name, whether it exists, the extension, the full name, the last access time, you know, all the all of those uh, properties that are available at the operating system level. Right. So, you know, if you want information about a file, system.io.fileinfo, plain and simple. Good cool. stuff. Excellent. So uh, this is where you read a email from a happy customer. Uh, not always a happy customer, although this one, <laughs> and actually I've had a bunch of emails like this. I'm surprised about uh, show 326, the show with your brother, yeah, I know. Jay Franklin. He we really just got a huge reaction from that show. And the thing that's cool is that, you know, he's so unassuming and just, you know, well, nobody wants to listen to me, you know. Well, I'm just... He's just like his brother in a lot of ways, actually. <laughs> you, you two are a match set. It's funny. But, yeah. you know, since we went to two shows a week, I've always struggled with what to do on the other show. I know I know I have to do a techie show every week. Right. And this week's show, of course, the Tuesday show is the techie show, and we got one for you, yeah. as usual. But the second show is where I get to sort of stretch my legs. And so, you know, Jay Franklin is a Java programmer. What was the take on that? But mm. let me read you the email. Okay. And I, I would point out, it starts out, hey, Carl and Richard, like he knows the hierarchy. Yeah, well. <laughs> and then in, in square brackets, which makes it special... Fit in normal <laughs> accolades here. So I don't, oh, you know, man. I can articulate anyone I want. <laughs> you know, that goes back to a show long, long time ago where it sounded like, and, and I wasn't really complaining, but it sounded like I was complaining that all our emails sort of sound the same. Right. And like I should complain, like all our shows sound the same. <laughs> all our intros sound the same, right? Yes, it's like true. Like I should talk. But, uh, right, but let me keep going because yeah. he then follows up with this after the square brackets with wow three explanation points mm. I just finished listening to show 326 Jay Franklin is a Java programmer and I had to write not only was the show riveting to listen to especially the boatyard stories but I found the musical performance at the end outstanding <laughs> yeah Jay played a Scenes from an Italian restaurant. Yes. And he on the goes piano. on to say, Scenes from an Italian restaurant is not only one of my favorite Billy Joel songs, but also Jay's rendition was fantastic. He's awesome. I found myself singing along with Jay and Carl. Yeah. I also wanted to tell you how much I appreciated show 300, Richard Campbell Tells All. <laughs> having grown up with computers around me the sa- at the same time and having a similar passion for fixing things and tearing them apart when they couldn't be fixed no more just to see what's inside. I thoroughly enjoyed the stories of Goliath and what do you do with a really big magnet? Yeah, that was awesome. That's the, my favorite Richard Campbell story. And you know, the funniest thing about that story is that story came about because of a Monday's episode where I found a company selling a really big magnet. Right, and it was you remember funny. remember that? It was funny because they were charging $30,000 for, $30, for a really big magnet, didn't even have a power switch on it, and all it was for was for erasing tapes. It was ridiculous. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, you know who you remind me of in a lot of ways, and me to a, a much lesser extent, but maybe in a different way is Les Paul. Oh, so if you don't know who Les Paul is, and yes, there is a guitar called the Gibson Les Paul, which is probably the most famous guitar in all of rock and roll. Arguably, yeah. And and I have one, and I wanted one since I was ten, and I got one when I was like sixteen of my own money, my own my own gig money. So uh, anyway, Les Paul invented multi-track recording, invented reverb, invented digital delay, invented the solid body hard, you know, hardwood guitar and uh, and came out and at the same time came out with the most amazing music of his time. He was the first guy to do multi-track recording because he invented the process. Right. So so his uh, songs with Mary Ford, you would hear her harmonizing with herself and that was the first time anyone ever heard like multiple versions of one voice with the same person with the same person harmonized it was just not done before him no so i saw this i got this great i went to best buy and i got this documentary on dvd about les paul and i swear it was the most amazing thing it was very touching too because he's like 90 something and he plays every monday night in new york city that's amazing yeah what a guy and guys like Paul McCartney and Keith Richards and Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck are all in this video, and they're just, you know, bowing to this guy because he's such a genius. The guy invented it all. And he's a great player. 
you know, amazing player. Well, and I and I like the fact that he just still plays. You know, that's something I came to appreciate when we were on the road trip together. Is you play every day? Yeah, I do. Yeah, for better or for worse. Let me finish this email. All right, go ahead. I am a huge fan of .NET Rocks and all of Pop Productions. In fact, I am crediting you with helping me land my current position. No kidding. During the interview, I began spouting off about what can be learned by listening to the shows, recommending that they get their developers started as soon as possible. After I started working there, what I was told that what really stuck out in their minds was my willingness to share information and promote developer improvement. Yeah. Thanks, .NET Rocks. Wow. And in parentheses, he says, and that should be worth some swag. <laughs> Absolutely. Seriously, keep up the good work and follow your instincts. That's what makes the show so great. Hmm. Tim Wazowicz. What a nice thing to say. Follow that your was a instincts. nice thing to say. And and thanks. Uh, you know, we, I think we both struggle with, are we doing the right thing? Constantly. You know, it's easy to pick a techie show and just hide behind that. But when it's these out there shows, like Jay's show, yeah, that was sort of a struggle with, are we doing the right thing? So thanks very much, Tim. Appreciate your thoughts. It's pretty cool. Uh, you know, I like to think we've always sort of done our own thing. And that's that's why people like us, I guess. Definitely. And uh, you remember I was talking about Dubai. Yes, you were. Show. Well, um, you know our friends at Infusion. I almost said Inclusion, which is <laughs> which is a movie actually made locally here in New London. But Infusion Development in New York City. Uh, Greg Brill and those guys. Nick Landry, of course, works down there. Great creative company working in the .NET space. Amazing company. They asked us to read this message. And I'll just read it, and then we'll comment on it. So it's uh, it's about Dubai. They're they're opening a new office in Dubai. So here it goes: investment banks, government agencies, and even royalty turn to Infusion Development for sophisticated software solutions. Now we're turning to you. Move to Dubai. Wow, which is in the UAE, right? United it, Arab Emirates it is indeed right across the uh, Persian Gulf, or if you're on that side, the Arabian Sea. From Iran. Yeah. Move to Dubai and start our newest office. Build solutions that influence world markets, city infrastructures, and private enterprise. Your work will make a difference in one of the largest technology markets in the world. Dubai is decadence. Complete with the world's largest structures, indoor ski hills, and Earth's only six-star hotel. Not to mention tax-free living. And we talked about this before. Yes, we did. I, I've been to Dubai. I've spent some time there. It uh, is insanity in a yeah. lot of ways. You know, what's interesting about Dubai is that, and actually all of the UAE, is that they're a very small country, and they were conscious of the fact that their oil supply would run out, and they've spent their money, I would say, quite wisely, and that they're investing in other things, and they're building this great infrastructure and this remarkable place to do business. Hmm. Uh, the rest of it says, we'll make your relocation to Dubai as simple as possible. We also offer tour programs in London and New York, which is what we talked about before on the show, where you spend a year in London or New York working for them, and they move you there, they fly you there. Uh, I don't know about London, but New York is definitely the case. And we are always looking for strong .NET consultants interested in working with emerging technologies. Email a Richardson at infusion.com or visit the Infusion website at www.infusion.com for more information. And, man, you know, the more I talk to you about Dubai, the more I want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is the sort of place you want to go if you're a young couple or a single and you're ready for an adventure. Commit a year. Really, commit two years Hell, and have an not? amazing experience. Well, and you said bandwidth there is ridiculously off the hook, right? Oh, yeah. Internet connectivity is not the issue. Uh, and Dubai is a major hub. So getting to, they got a direct flights to New York. Huh. They got direct flights to Singapore. Anywhere you want to go, easy to get to. And and everything you can think of is available there for a price. Dude, why are you renovating your house? You should go to Dubai. <laughs> I saying. live in Vancouver. I already live in the best place in the world. I'm spoiled. Ah, okay. All right. You're spoiled. <laughs> well, you know, Richard, this show is interesting because our guests we've had on twice before. Once before you were associated with the show and then another time when you were. And uh, uh, Jonathan uh, Zuck is a great friend, and uh, he's one of these guys who, well, I'll just read his bio, and then we can talk to him. Uh, you know, why, why am I explaining here? <laughs> Let's just get him on the show. 
Uh, Jonathan's a widely known and respected leader in the technology industry. As a professional software developer and IT executive with more than 15 years of experience, Jonathan brings an insider's perspective to his role as president of the Association for Competitive Technology, or ACT Online. So uh, the kind of stuff that he does now is um, more in the political realm and in the legal realm and uh, advocacy, I guess you would call it Jonathan, but uh, he did cut his teeth on... Uh, on uh, VB and C++ back in the day, and we've had him on a couple of times. Welcome back, Jonathan. Hey, it's great to be here. I have a question. Does this show actually reach Toronto? Oh, <laughs> yes, it does. All the Got way to Toronto. broadcast range, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. So you're also a, sort of a movie video guy lately. Well, yeah, I went to film school about six years ago on a short leave of absence and uh, been doing uh, short films uh, ever since. And we just completed our, or just shot, I should say, completed is such a vague term. Yeah. Um, our first feature uh, last August, actually. So, uh, Is it something we can we'll watch? We'll have that out soon and we can run a clip on uh, dot rock TV. Yeah, we'd love to do that. And, uh, and of course, as I said before, you sort of cut your teeth in the programming world and then, got into this advocacy role and uh the story we've talked about that story on previous shows but yeah, the uh transition from writing code in small talk to making small talk it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's been a rough ride in some respects to go from teaching object-oriented programming to explaining what a browser cookie is right. to a member of congress are you still doing that kind of stuff well, in a sense, there's always going to be some level of that kind of stuff because there's always an attempt by policymakers to get their arms around things that they don't necessarily understand. And so the 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 pressure to regulate uh, is uh, much higher than the pressure to learn. And uh, that's a uh, mm. always, I think, going to be a tension in the area of public policy and uh, information technology. Yeah. I mean, a good uh, example is, uh, you know, spyware legislation, right? You'll have a bunch of people complaining about spyware on their machines, right? Which you, you hear about a lot less now, but that used to be, you know, a huge thing that everybody was talking about. There's spyware on my machine. And, right. And uh, so, of course, um, policymakers want to find a way to legislate spyware out of existence. And, and so they set about trying to define what spyware is and start trying to understand it from a technical standpoint. And over time, you you manage to convey the fact that the technology of spyware is actually the same technology that's used in virus checkers, children's content filtering, Windows update, etc., and that it's the conduct behind the use of that technology that you really want to regulate. You know, are they trying to sneak it onto your machine? Are they trying to get access to your personal information, et cetera, without your permission. Right. It's that conduct that has nothing actually to do with technology uh, that you want to keep the regulators focused on because if they try to regulate the technology itself, more often than not, you're going to catch dolphins in that tuna net. Now, don't uh, some of them get it more than others? I, I would imagine the ones that are most successful are the ones that uh, have guys like you who come up and do the technical explanations for them instead of trying to brave that world themselves. Is that well, some the of case? It, but also some of it's just a way of thinking about it. You know, any attempt to regulate technology itself is, you know, a moving target and is, and is generally only going to have the effect of slowing down the development of technology. So it's got to be about people. I mean, if you're, if you're making laws, it's got to be about what people do, not what, not about technology. Yeah. The one notable exception to that might be technology, you know, related for cloning or something like that, where the technology itself is questioned on moral grounds. But for the most part, you want to regulate conduct, not technology. Yeah, that's always a challenge for for regulators. So, well, how, it's so much easier to just say nobody's allowed to open this door rather than only good people are allowed to go through this door. What are some of your recent... Um, I would I would say success stories, but just uh, y you know issues that you've been involved with. Well, yeah, it's interesting because I um, I'm a little bit of a atypical lobbyist. Uh, a because I don't come out of government and actually come out of the industry, and B I'm sort of the lobbyist of last resort when all the regular relationship lobbyists have failed. So 
only when there's no chance for success that I'm called into a situation. Nice. So that leads me to be very proud of my 15% success rate. All right. Uh, that I've enjoyed in this position. And uh, that's what I keep telling my therapist. But, um, <laughs> you know, there have been a number of issues uh, that have come up uh, both here and uh, around the world. Um, uh, you know, and uh, today is actually an interesting day because uh, we're supposed to hear final resolution of the ISO vote on the standardization of the open the office open XML file format. Right, OOXML, um, and and been quite a row over it too. Uh, there sure has. I mean, the whole thing's a little bit ironic, given that you know. Uh, back when I was programming, ISO was something we all made fun of, you know, ISO 9000 and things of that sort. But uh, uh, it's really become front and center basically because of a procurement preference uh, campaign that has been waged by IBM and Sun uh, around the world. I mean, the history of this and why a simple ISO vote got to be so controversial and to be such big news really has its roots in an attempt by Abby and Son to basically uh, achieve uh, a level of procurement bias uh, toward a document format called the Open Document Format, or ODF. Right. I mean, there's always been, in the history of procurement, people trying to game the system, right? I don't know if you guys remember when Al Gore showed up on the, uh, on the Letterman show with the ashtray that had to break into 20 pieces. But the, but there's no, always been I missed that. Notion of, can I rig the system by getting the government to write a request for a proposal uh, for which only I qualify, right? Uh, you know, what was the Gore you have story? To be Ten feet tall in order to respond to this RFP. What was Sorry. the uh, what was the uh, Gore ashtray story? I missed that. Well, one of the things that Gore was uh, um, tasked by Clinton to work on is, uh, you know, the bureaucracy uh, of the federal government, in particular the executive branch. Right? It was about paper reduction and things like that. But there was a lot of controversy at that time about $10,000 ashtrays, uh, $5,000 Allen wrenches, oh, yeah. uh, you know, $50,000 toilet seats and things like that. Right? Hammers and things. And, and, and all that stuff was a function of creating overly specific um, uh, requirements for government contracts such that only one vendor had a product that would comply with the... Uh, request for proposal. And as soon as there's only one vendor, prices tend to get out of hand, right? Sure. And so these overly restrictive procurement, uh, regulations, et cetera, is the, you know, have their roots pretty far back. But the most recent participants in that process have been Sun and IBM, who've gone to over 70 governments around the world to try and get them to standardize across the government on the open document format. Um, making the claim that uh, they need an open format for, you know, their sovereignty and for the archiving of old documents, and uh, and uh, that's why they need this open standard that they created uh, in Oasis. And so, and that's where it all began. And and a lot of it happened in the state of Massachusetts. We were the first ones to take the bait and actually pass uh, an executive order associated with the open document format. And of course, the one thing that's not compatible with ODF is Word. Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is, at the time at which these things are being proposed, there was no software that supported it. So it was a kind of an ironic thing to standardize on a format that, that was not couldn't yet get supported software by any software on the marketplace, much less the one in use by most people. Right. Um, so, and that's what made it a little bit ironic. I mean, if you think about it, it's a little bit like being a company that wants to break into the, uh, the film business, right? And, uh, you know, you're having, you know, you, you used to make projectors, but now you want to make films. So you, you go around and you try to get, you know, movie makers to use your film and they won't use it. And, uh, you know, you try to get archivists to use your film and they won't use it. So then what you do is you get together and decide you're going to create a new standard for film. And the new standard is going to be 39 millimeter black and white film, right? So uh, this is a, because it came out of a standards body, it's inherently good. So now I'm going to skip all the people that know anything about this stuff and go to the politicians and say, you need to force the entire government to standardize 
on this 39-millimeter black-and-white film. Because an archivist would say, uh, yeah, but I actually have some color negatives here. I'm not understanding how I'm going to archive those on this black-and-white film. You know, what am I supposed <laughs> to do with The Wizard of Oz, right? And, uh, you know, 39-millimeter, that seems a little arbitrary, given that I've got 35-millimeters sitting around here, you know, in the in the container load, but uh, but it's a standard, so therefore we should uh, standardize on it, and that's a very similar process to ODF, which was an attempt to just create a standard from scratch in the, the Oasis Standards Organization. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, six of the eleven votes for the standard were held by IBM and Sun. Um, so, you know, the, all this discussion about democratization and the widespread use of ODS is uh, a little disingenuous as well. So, anyways, they started this standard, they got it out there, and they started advocating it around the world. And uh, But, you know, again, what you do is you try to create language that is overly restrictive but not specific. So it has to be an ISO-approved standard, you know, to be used for government documents. Right. Well, and then the European Union said to Microsoft, why don't you standardize your format? So they did. So when they came out with their XML-based format, which is called Office Open XML or OOXML, uh, they submitted it to ECMA, who approved it, and then ECMA in turn submitted it to ISO. And that's when this storm of controversy began, because suddenly, specifying that a ISO standard be the only one accepted for government procurement wasn't enough to just pick ODF because suddenly there were going to be two. So IBM and Sun and many in the open source software community launched a campaign to try and prevent uh, the acceptance of uh, Office Open XML as a standard within the ISO. And it's that debate that's been raging ever since. Do you know how to build Web 2.0 AJAX applications with Web 1.0 components? Right. You just can't. In order to have next-generation web apps, you need next-generation components. And that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have for you. Their upcoming product, codenamed Rad Controls Prometheus, is a huge pack of web controls built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, which will add previously impossible performance and interactivity to your next project. Just listen to this. The new controls mirror the ASP.NET Ajax API, so development is straightforward. Client scripts are shared, so loading time is pretty much instant. And if you just set a couple of properties, you'll be able to automatically bind to web services for even more efficient operation. After all, the facts speak for themselves. The new RAD editor for ASP.NET AJAX loads up to four times faster than before. Similarly, RAD Grid handles thousands of records in mere milliseconds. But again, it's best to try for yourself. Visit Telerik.com slash ASP.NET AJAX and download a trial. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So tell me about the op the standard itself. What is what's inherently? I mean, other than the fact that nobody uses it, what uh, is there? Is there anything technologically that's challenging or backwards or that doesn't really fit well? Is there any about reason ODS, not to use it? Mean? Yeah. Well, the, fundamentally, it's just not comprehensive enough. I mean, one of the primary criticisms of Microsoft's proposed standard, this Office Open XML, is that it's 6,000 pages long and it's got all kinds of in-the-weeds details that's designed to kind of carry forward the entire history of Word docs, right? Mm. And and so because they're trying to preserve um, complete fidelity of historical documents, you know, bugs in previous versions of file formats have to be preserved because people you know, you know, fudged around those bugs, et cetera. You guys have encountered all this, how sometimes you have oh, to sure. forward your bugs Absolutely. because you've coded to them, right? And uh, and so that's part of the complexity of the spec. And the ODF spec is certainly a great deal simpler. Uh, but as a result, it doesn't offer that level of full fidelity for these historical documents. So the fact that you're making this argument that this is all about archiving and always being able to get to your documents is a little disingenuous because you've created a format that won't allow for full fidelity of those documents. So some modern examples is, uh, you know, ODF doesn't have any means of storing ink that you created on a tablet PC. It doesn't have uh, Visual Basic in it, so any sort of automated documents for tax preparation or 
template documents for screenplays or whatever else. There's a lot of applications that are built on top of Office cannot be stored into uh, ODS. Uh, voice annotations, some accessibility features, etc., are not supported by ODS. So in that context, you have an archive format, which, as I said, is a little bit like saying, let's standardize in black and white film. Imagine, imagine you sell WordPerfect and I sell Notepad. The best way for me to create, uh, you know, a level playing field between us would be to go out and get the world to standardize on the ASCII text file format. Right. Right? Because everybody can create that. It's very democratic. But I've also eliminated a lot of the competitive differentiators that you offer and work perfect, like footnotes and boldface. Yeah. So tell me what's going on lately with uh, Microsoft in the EU. Because I know that's another area that you've been uh, active in. Well, I mean, it's a, uh, I, there was a, uh, I guess since we last met, that 18 months is a long time since we uh, did a show together. I guess you guys keep hoping I'll mature over time or something. Yeah. We were talking about the EU 18 months ago. Yeah, exactly. Well, that case is, in fact, 10 years old. Um, and, uh, and so, unfortunately, it just about exactly fits over my tenure here at the association. Um, but uh, that case was begun uh, pr principally by um, Sun and Real Networks. And uh, Real Networks, which has a very interested and spotted history of complaints against Microsoft. I, Talking uh, about spyware. Yeah, really. Yes, exactly. I remember when they went before the Senate Judiciary Committee and told uh, Orrin Hatch that uh, Microsoft had sabotaged Real Player um, because it had worked before and then it didn't. And uh, uh. it turns out they had changed their installation routine. And so it was just a documented registry, uh, uh, you know, insertion they needed to make to make their product work. Oops. You know, so, but, uh, they, you know, people were not getting the joy they wanted in the U.S. court systems. And so they engaged in what's known as venue shopping and uh, took their case overseas. And so uh, Real Networks was basically trying to create a situation uh, in which uh, Windows Media Player wasn't as able to compete as effectively against uh, Real Player, they wanted it either removed from the operating system or uh, for Real Networks to be forced to be bundled on the operating system, etc. What did I just hear Google complaining about? Oh, maybe it was the Yahoo thing, the Microsoft well, Yahoo thing, and Google was yeah, complaining about that. Going on Talk in about the pot calling the kettle black, man. Oh, I know. Yeah. That was uh, there was a complaint about desktop search, and then more recently a complaint about the Yahoo acquisition. But uh, so uh, you know, basically uh, the commission ruled that uh, Microsoft would have to create a version of Windows that contained no media functionality. Right, and that went over course, like Microsoft a lead balloon. Microsoft wanted to call it Windows Reduced Media Edition. But the commission was concerned <laughs> that that would actually lead to people not buying it. So they, they forced Microsoft to call it Windows slash N. Right. Yeah. So as a result, 1,200 copies of this software were sold, and I'm pretty certain by accident for people that didn't know what the slash N meant. <laughs> that is hilarious. So that remedy seemed to turn out to be a little bit ridiculous. but um, Reduced media player functionality. I love that. Yeah. Reduced media. Remo reduced media edition is what they wanted to call it, what Microsoft wanted to call it. Which is yeah, actually what it was. The difference in the version was. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly what the difference was. And uh, I mean, here in the United States, the uh, the remedy to the case here was that OEMs and customers would have the ability to hide uh, the applications that came with Windows and change the default to an application of their choice. So if you're, an, you know, if you're Dell, you can make a deal with Real to make uh, Real Player the default media player on Windows and make the Windows Media Player invisible. But the fundamental difference is actually of concern to us, which is that that remedy didn't do anything to remove the underlying APIs for media functionality, whereas the European remedy actually created a version of Windows on the market that had it become more successful, would have created a fragmentation in the API itself, so that if you were creating media-dependent software, you know, like the uh, Rosetta Stone software you see in the airports, uh, you wouldn't know predictably whether or not the media support was there on the operating system for the software you were building. I mean, as developers, we're a lot more concerned about when they're screwing with 
the platform than we are with the sort of user experience. Right. Well, now, yeah, now we have to check to see if that library is actually there when normally we think it always is. Right, exactly. And, and when it's only one thing, then, uh, you know, that doesn't feel so difficult. But, uh, you know, what, what happens when Windows adds voice annotation, which it will, and one thing after another, you know, you can see a situation where everybody that offers an aftermarket, uh, you know, functionality for Windows is going to want it removed. Uh, in some way, or have there be a version without it uh, uh, for Windows, and uh, you can end up with an entire patchwork of different versions of Windows with different combinations of technology in them, um, without actually having any more customers than you had before. So it has the effect of raising your cost without doing anything to raise your revenue. Um, and then the other ruling that happened in the commission was uh, that Microsoft was uh, forced to share some communications protocols um, server-to-server protocols that are used in particular inside of uh, uh, Active Directory. Um, and that was a fairly controversial thing as well because, uh, you know, some of Microsoft's IP is embedded in those protocols. You know, they've, they've done a little bit better job than Novell and Sun and IBM at scaling to uh, larger numbers of servers, and they've done a little bit better job of uh, maintaining synchronization over no- noisy uh, internet connections. So if you have some sort of an international enterprise and you have uh, Active Directory servers around the world and some of them uh, have bad connections, they still do a good job of staying in sync. And so both of those competitive advantages are actually tied up in these protocols. So then you had a situation where once the ruling was there, uh, Microsoft wanted to charge for the protocols because they contained IP, and uh, but the commission didn't want that because they wanted uh, for uh, the open source guys to be able to implement them. And uh, so finally they worked out some kind of a licensing scheme that would work. Um, and uh, then they just recently uh, fined Microsoft another, you know, half a billion dollars for uh, taking too long to come up with a good pricing scheme. You know, it's a, uh, they're, uh, they're pretty, pretty far in debt to the European uh, Union right now in these fines. So that's what's sort of been going on over the last 10 years, and it went through a court of appeals and it was upheld there, and I think at this point, Microsoft's just going to try to comply to just make some effort, if possible, to get back to the business of business. So who gets that money? Half a billion dollars? That's just the latest fine. It's over a billion dollars now. I mean, it's just going to go into the coffers of the individual uh, countries that uh, that now spend money to finance the European Commission. So even though it's a lot of money, you know, over a billion dollars, the, you know, the commission's budget is bigger than that. And so, you know, the, for next year, the budget will just be the amount required from the uh, individual um, European member states will just be a billion less. That's how it works. Wow. It's just such a tremendous amount of money, and I don't see what it changed. It got some people some money they wouldn't have had otherwise. That's what it did. Yeah, well, and I, I there are protocols that are now published and fairly easily accessible that weren't before. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there are developers that are happy about that. Um, you know, I mean, we always like more information. I mean, the, the, the problem, of course, is one of, you know, what kind of precedents are you setting for the protection of intellectual property? If, if, if getting a compulsory license is just a function of uh, launching an antitrust complaint. I mean, because, you know, I hear that uh, Franklin's.net has some sort of uh, proprietary PWAP uh, <laughs> architecture that they don't make available to the uh, general marketplace because it's a competitive advantage. Right. So I, I mean, I think i got to talk to the DOJ about that. To <laughs> create a compulsory license for no money. Yeah. Or we face massive fines. Uh, exactly. Well, both. You pay massive fines and still end up licensing the technology for free. So right. why don't you just save yourself some time and license it to me now? Yeah, we'll settle. What the the office open office XML format? This was just voted on, but we haven't heard back yet. That's right. the The voting was completed by midnight last night, and I think because of the level of controversy surrounding this, it's been sort of ginned up by IBM and Sun. Uh, you know, I think they're trying to just really make sure they count it correctly, right? They don't want any kind of a Chad situation. 
Uh, yeah, no hanging chads for this kind of vote. Right, but exactly. I thought the ODF guys liked OOXML. Didn't you find it? Wasn't it like one of the major editors saying this is a good thing? Yeah, Patrick Dussault actually is one of the major editors of ODF that said it's a good thing. And so now, of course, as is often true in that community, they've all turned on him and called him a traitor and said that he went to a Bible conference in Seattle and was turned by somebody like it's the Cold War. I mean, it's amazing uh, the level of vitriol and bile that gets spewed on a lot of these flash dots and grok laws and the PJs and, and, and sites of that sort. Hmm. As soon as you say anything that's nice about Microsoft, you're vilified for all time. When I, th- I think it's, it's just an interesting thing of, does this have anything to do with the quality of technology at all, or is it purely because it's Microsoft, it must be evil? Well, I, I think it would be a mistake to say that the uh, standard as proposed by Microsoft was perfect, right? I think that there's things that need to be corrected and things that need to be worked on, which is often the case. And so, you know, some of the more reasonable commentators are saying that, well, we just shouldn't rush this standard. But, of course, the only reason that Microsoft is rushing the standard is because IBM and Sun have created an untenable procurement environment around the world by, by you know, creating this sort of artificial procurement bias uh, for ODF. So, uh, you know, a document format that, that even if Microsoft decides to support, won't support all the features of its product. So, I mean, it, you know, I, you know this, this timing, this rush, et cetera, all have their roots back in this political campaign to try and create a competitive advantage through document standards. But it is kind of frightening to consider that folks would actually adopt ODF and not uh, understand what that really meant. Oh, that's for sure the case. I mean, uh, one of the things that was a big surprise to the state of Massachusetts when they first did it is that uh, this clever way of excluding Microsoft Office from procurement also excluded the only product on the market that had accessibility features. So the competing products like Star Office, et cetera, didn't have uh, functionality for the handicapped, many of whom are state employees. And so uh, there was a bit of a spontaneous uh, demonstration uh, from the uh, uh, people with disabilities community uh, as a result of this mandate. You know, people often an attempt to kind of create some sort of political precedent, don't think about the implications of what they do. Well, and, it, and of course, there's some reasonableness around that in the sense that everybody says that anytime you pass any law, the sky is falling. That's right. And there's always some uh, uh, unintended consequences. Um, and that's why, you know, at the federal level, at least, you actually have uh, agencies within the administration, the executive branch, that, uh, that perform impact analyses, and et cetera, in order to at least try to get a handle on what the implications of particular legislation might be. At the state level and in, in countries around the world, there's not even that attempt made. And so uh, the unintended consequences can be dramatic and uh, and unforeseen because they're not considered. Now, just out of curiosity, who's doing the voting here? Who is the ISO? Well, it's a it's made up of a bunch of uh, you know national standards bodies, and the participation on those national standards bodies is uh, is companies. But in most instances, it's representatives from very large companies. Um, there's hmm. not a lot of small business participation in the standards process because. If you're a small business, how do you have time to participate in something that bogged down and bureaucratic? I can imagine you're also running up against, you know, some high power, highly powerful people with their sphere of friends that you don't really have a lot of influence over. Sure, and in a lot of places, these debtors' bodies are, are, are fairly tightly wound uh, yeah. around the government pinky as well. And so it's uh, an I- interesting environment to... to in which people try to create these international have have there been any i mean i alluded i used this word before success stories where you've been able to actually convince people who are just going to go along with a bill that no this is actually a bad idea and here's why uh yeah we've actually had quite a few uh successes i was joking earlier but um you know a lot of what um has started to happen uh here in the united states is at, in the state legislatures and we have defeated a lot of these ODF preference bills uh, that IBM has proposed in Minnesota and California and Texas 
and ultimately got a modification of the bill in Massachusetts. So we've, we've had some successes. I mean, some of the funnier things are what you might call protectionist legislation within the states where, uh, local, um, uh, you know, business people are basically lobbying their state government for legislation that will protect them from electronic commerce, from interstate commerce. Hmm. You know, for example, uh, South Carolina at one point had a bill on the, uh, on the docket which would have required anybody using an auction to sell into South Carolina, i.e. eBay, uh, to get a license, uh, an auctioneer's license in South Carolina. Oh, I remember talking about this. 80 hours of training for things like, uh, personal hygiene, public speaking, and hog calling. Right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, so if you wanted to sell Beanie Babies to South Carolina, you know, to somebody in South Carolina, you'd have to actually become a licensed auctioneer there. And we're not um, talking about eBay becoming a licensed auctioneer. We're talking about every seller. Every seller. That's exactly right. Because oh, they're participating in the selling process. You know, one of the more recent uh, bills that's cropped up around uh, a lot of states uh, would um, uh, require criminal background checks on online dating uh, sites, right? But again, it's like the ashtray. You know, this particular criminal background check needs to be based on a database of a particular size that comes from particular sources, et cetera. And you realize when you dig into it that the only people that own a database like that are the people that run True.com, right? So, you know, it's, again, another attempt um, not only to create more restrictions online than there are in the real world, because you certainly don't get criminal background checks of the girl across you, you in the bar, um, the uh, it's also an attempt to gain competitive advantage by a of level course. of specificity uh, in which only one company could comply with the regulation. Well, that's really what it all boils down to. I mean, people are trying to get a competitive advantage by political means. That's right, and and but but every one of these bills is wrapped in this cloak of public interest, and uh, you know, ninety nine percent of the time it's commercial interest. Wrapped in the cloak of commercial, you know, uh, commercial interest wrapped in the cloak of public interest. And 1% of the time, it's an actual public interest issue, you know, Clean Air Act or something like that. But it's, right. uh, it's, it feels pretty rare in, in the 10 years I've been doing this. Speaking of 10 years, it was 10 years ago that the, the Justice Department started investigating Microsoft. Actually, my friend, it was five years ago that that case ended. So it was a uh, that the, the consent decree was put in place. So I guess again, saying ended is maybe uh, something rash in the context of Microsoft, because these things seem to go on indefinitely. But that case was settled with the Department of Justice and the 19 attorneys general uh, about five years ago, and resulted in the consent decree. And so that began, uh, you know, depending on where you start counting. Uh, as much as 15 years ago. The, uh, it's just amazing. You know, the funny part is somebody, I, I was talking about this, that uh, how the parallels between Microsoft and IBM, that IBM went through all the same sort of Justice Department stuff in the 70s and ended up with consent decrees. Right. And then, well, and if you look at it, there's all kinds of monopolies that go from uh, uh, fighting with the government to being co-opted by the government and then ultimately using the government, right? I mean, you right. the level of politics engaged in by AT&T, the Bell companies, uh, you know, IBM, et cetera, is this recognition that they learned the hard way just how powerful government is and how much, com- how comparatively cheaper it is than battling it out with your competitors in the marketplace. Why don't I, I only have to lobby a few people, get some bills passed, and I don't need to have a better mousetrap. I remember Bill Gates saying uh, at the first, you know, back in the uh, the 90s when the, this uh, legislation was first coming up, he's, you know, he didn't say, you know, we should have been more careful about our practices. He said, I should have spent more time in Washington. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, one of the ironies of antitrust enforcement generally is that um, it, it outlaws behavior that is commonplace in the industry. Because you've reached a status in which the rules change for you. Right. But the problem is you cross the line and reach that status uh, to no fanfare. It just happens sometime in your past. Uh, five years ago, you became a monopoly, and therefore doing what you've always done and what everyone else continues to do became illegal 
uh, here's your fine, right? And that's a uh, a pretty crazy uh, way to regulate the industry. Well, and the funny part, and I almost wonder if this is an American thing too, is because you were successful at doing what you've been doing, now you're a bad guy. Well, yeah, or well, here's your fine, as Jonathan said. What in you know who who should when should we as business owners of consulting companies when should we start to worry that the government's going to come for us? I mean, well, I mean, the irony is that uh, you know you th- you always uh, associate uh, antitrust enforcement with very large companies, but all it all it really is associated with is market dominance. So before uh, IBM bought Rational Software, for example. Its competitors were complaining that they had hired too many of the experts in their field and actually filed a complaint against the DOJ for rational software, hmm. right? Which, you know, while not tiny, certainly wasn't the size of companies that you normally associate with antitrust. So basically, the, the moment you have something that all your competitors want, you know, like, I don't know, PWAP, then, uh, it's plop, man. It's plop. plop, not pwop. Get it right, dude. <laughs> it's the sound of a forehead slap. Oh, I see. Not necessarily your own, but most likely. Well, I have a two syllable forehead slap. It's, you know, it comes down <laughs> along the, the side have of the Have you seen palm my forehead? It's by the thumb, right? Plop. Plop. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, you got something nobody else has. Right. You know, that's a competitive differentiator. It's preventing them from you know competing with you. Um, you know, so uh, why not make uh, why not make you a target of antitrust enforcement? Well, and, it, and, it, and I guess part of it's just a money issue as well. That I guess companies get to a certain size where they can then afford to assign people and resources to lobbying. To lobbying, and then in some instances, actually doing the homework for the antitrust officials as well. Right. So, yeah, you're you're spending a lot of money very often bringing your competitor to the DOJ because you're trying to do that. You're trying to do their work as well. The word antitrust in of itself is such a gray area. I mean, it basically means that it has the uh, prohibiting agreements or practices that restrict free trade and competition between businesses. But you know, lower prices do that. Better products do that. You know? Well, you know, there's, a, there's an old Where do you thing. draw the there's, line? There's, a, there's three ways that you can become a victim in an antitrust enforcement action. One is setting your prices lower than your competitors, right? Because then you're trying to... Uh, That's just business. Um, you're trying to, uh, you, know, uh, you know, take over the market, right? The right. other is setting your prices higher than your competitors because then you are uh, engaged in monopoly maintenance. Or... The worst is set your prices the same as your competitors. That's collusion. Because then it's collusion. (laughs) (laughs) It's really bad. (laughs) You know? So, yeah, it can can get a little bit hinky, this whole antitrust thing. uh, (laughs) Basically, uh, there's no option. You can get screwed on any. Yeah, you get into business, you're wrong. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I mean, I'm I'm sort of working on an op ed that. that the European Commission uh, and the DOJ or the FTC that approved the Google DoubleClick merger, right? Because there's a, a lot of people that are very concerned about the privacy implications of that merger. Um, you know, because suddenly a whole lot of your personal information is stored in one place, right? I mean, Google already had a lot. That's right. But DoubleClick, th- I mean, those guys, that's from the dot-com boom era. They were collecting data for a long, long time. Right. So they've got a lot more. So now it's the two of them combined. But the problem is that privacy is not one of the criteria for merger review, right? It's, you know, the, the fact that you become a monopoly isn't in and of itself illegal. What's right. illegal is abusing that monopoly, right? And so I, I'm trying to figure out how to get the FTC and the uh, DOJ and the European Commission to issue uh, Google, a friendly reminder, you've just become a monopoly, <laughs> right? This is the thing that never happens, right? Right, but, right. You know, the bell has rung, you are now a monopoly, the rules have now changed for you, so watch your back, right? Yeah, because yeah, keep your eyes open. Typically, it's five or six years later that they say, you became monopoly five years ago, and therefore, these things you've been doing are illegal. 
So maybe you sh- maybe there's some way they can give them a heads up now that says, well, you haven't done anything wrong yet, but we wanted to let you know that you're a monopoly now. Yeah, <laughs> send them a little plaque. Congratulations, right. you're a monopoly. Exactly. <laughs> How does it feel now? Right, exactly. Are you, are you buying Disney World? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a it's going to be uh, interesting down the road for Google for sure because uh, their megalomaniacal ways are are, are certainly going to put them in the crosshairs of antitrust enforcers uh, before too long. John, uh, we're coming in towards the end of the show here, but maybe for the listeners, what should we be doing as developers to be paying more attention to this? I mean, what I could see that some of these rulings are impacting us, not the least of which trying to figure out if you actually have a media center edition of Windows or not. But uh, is there things we could be doing more so to uh, to to try and cut down on the dumbness affecting our lives? Well, I mean, uh, one of the ironies that I've discovered in doing this work is that the community of free software developers seems to have a lot more free time than the community of commercial developers. And so when you go to the online blogs, when you go to the talkbacks, the articles, etc., the overwhelming response is actually coming from the sort of anti-commercial forces. And, and that's something that really concerns me a great deal, because over time, the media, politicians, and others will come to believe that this actually represents the majority view, when in reality, it's just this very, very vocal minority. And so, I mean, I, you know, I think we need to find a way to carve out a little bit of our time to, when reading an article, you know, react at the bottom of it, to show how it's not reflective of your point of view, that that it's being simplistic or... Uh, or, or irrelevant in the in the point that it's trying to make, or or on someone's blog, or on Dig, and things like that. Because I think it's one of those situations that if we don't take the time now, even though technically we don't have the time, uh, we'll have to make the time later, and it may very well be too late. We'll be living in a world that's regulated by those who believe that what we do should be given away for free. Yeah. Kind of amazing to think about, really, but I guess it makes sense. I don't understand why those open source guys have so much time. Because like, obviously I, I they've got to make a living still somehow. They have more time than we do, but they're but they're focused on bringing about social change, and we are happy with the status quo. And the mm. people who are happy with the status quo are almost always more complacent than those who are interested in bringing about change. Hmm. But I think that some extent, some level of defense of the status quo, as unsexy and uninteresting and unexciting as it may be, uh, is, is a real moral imperative for those of us that believe in the value of what we do, because I think that, uh, um, you know, the, the whole national and international debate about software, about intellectual property, is changing because of the actions of, of what it really represents a very small minority. Of people in the technical community. One thing we can do is is uh, become a member of Act Online, right? Uh, you can certainly become a member, and uh, you know I, I don't even need to make the overhead that high. I'd be happy just to hear from you, and uh, and hear that you're uh, willing to get a little more involved, um, because a lot of this isn't about joining an organization; it's about leaving a talk back to an article you think is stupid. Hmm. I'm happy to help people find places to do that. There's plenty of them, um, but I, I don't need you to join anything. I just need you to join the fight. Very cool. Well, it starts with being aware there's a fight going on. <laughs> yeah, it certainly yeah, does. And, and, and it's easy not to be, and I, I'll admit to not having been very aware of it, you know, as a technology entrepreneur myself. Uh, you know, I was too busy programming. So I get it. But... uh now that this is going on, now that it's gotten to this level of, you know, vitriol and bile and and uh, political hackery, I, I, you know, I think it's time for those of us that, you know, grew up in a tradition of commercial software uh, that, that we take a stand. Jonathan, what's your uh, movie about? 
My movie is uh, sort of a cross between uh, La Femme Nikita and uh, Born Identity. Oh, man. So it's wow. Fun. A lot of explosions and hot chicks? Yeah. You know, <laughs> the explosions and hot chicks are uh, all just about as low budget as the movie is. So, you know, it's a, it's a B-movie B version of those, uh, of those films. So wow. that's really an expression of genre, not quality. But uh, hopefully it'll still be a fun one. Cool. All right, Jonathan, actonline.org is the website if you want to get involved or just uh, contact Jonathan and um, speak out, speak your mind. It's a good idea. Jonathan, thanks very much. Pleasure to be Always a pleasure to talk to you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.